Well, good morning, and thank you so much for joining with us this morning. As Nick said earlier, happy Mother's Day. We're so excited and, and uh, appreciative of what moms do for us. And so as we continue in worship this morning, would you join me for a short moment of prayer? Let's ask God's blessing on His Word, and let's just ask God's blessing upon moms as well. So pray with me. Lord Jesus, we thank you for, uh, for moms. We thank you for the influence they are in our lives. We thank you for the love and compassion that they give and, 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 and just minister to us with. We pray your blessings upon them on this special day. God, you encourage them and strengthen them. And Lord, we pray for the preaching of your word. God, would you just open our hearts and our minds to receive what you would have us to receive today. Teach us, God. Grow us in our faith. Draw us to yourself. Help us to see Jesus and help us to understand all that Jesus is doing in us and through us, even in the midst of suffering, as we'll see in the passage that we're looking at this morning. So God, bless this time. Continue to open our hearts and draw us to yourself, we pray, in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, take your Bible and turn with me to Revelation chapter 11. We're working through this book in a series that we've called, Get Ready. Last week, we talked about the mighty angel and the little scroll. Now, as we move into chapter 11, we're talking about, and we're going to see the two witnesses. And so we're going to be reading in Revelation chapter 11, verses 1 through 13 in just a moment. So go ahead and find your place there. And as you're doing so, you've probably heard of Thomas Aquinas. He was a great Catholic priest, a great Catholic Christian thinker uh, back many, many centuries ago. But Thomas Aquinas knew a great deal about education. He knew a bit about motivation as well. And he once said that when you want to convert a person to your viewpoint, you go over to where he is, where he's standing, you take him by the hand, and you guide him. You don't stand across the room and shout at him. You, you don't order him to come over to where you are. No, you start where the person is, and you work from that position. Thomas Aquinas said, that the only way to get people to budge is to do just that. This past Thursday morning, I had the opportunity to be on a video conference call with the president of our IMB as well as some of his staff and then pastors from around our state convention. And during that video conference, I heard stories of how our missionaries are serving the peoples of the world and sharing the gospel in the midst of this pandemic. It was an amazing thing to hear all of those stories. I heard about believers in Nepal who are taking the gospel and, and, and doing some amazing things, even under a very strict stay-at-home type of order. Now, if you know anything about Nepal or cultures like that, there is uh, the culture there, me... The idea of the culture there is that you you go out and you gather the food you need for that day. It's very different than the way we live here in America. And so in that culture, because of that stay at home, there is a lot of danger happening. There is actually the danger of starvation because they are ordered not to leave their homes. And so many of the Nepalese people are really being faced with an important question, a major question. Do I obey the law or do I go and feed my family? And so, in response to that, many of the Nepalese churches have taken their offerings and used the money to purchase food for their communities. And so, the believers' homes have become stations where their neighbors have access 
to food and, and supplies. In addition to that, as they come and receive these things and, and gather these things, they're able to not just get supplies, but to hear the gospel, to hear about Jesus, and to be drawn to faith in Jesus Christ. And so these Nepalese believers are actually risking their own health, risking their own safety in order to provide food and the gospel to their neighbors. They are beautiful witnesses of the kindness and the sacrificial love of Jesus Christ. You know, the Bible reveals that God has always had His witnesses. God always has somebody speaking on behalf of Him, someone testifying, someone proclaiming the gospel to the peoples of the world. Now, it may look different in various places and at various times, but God graciously gives people opportunities to hear and to receive the knowledge of His grace and His justice. And Jesus said this, in fact, in John or Matthew chapter 24. He said, And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end the end." will come. Jesus says here that there will be a witness. There will continue to be a witness until the very end of time. Now, in our study of Revelation, we are seeing this very thing. We're seeing that God always has a witness. God always has the gospel there being proclaimed. His his character and his nature is on display both through his powerful actions but also through the testimony of his people. As we've seen, the judgments of the seals as well as the judgment of the trumpets have all been coupled with a call to repentance, a call to faith. The church, as I've told you, I believe will be present during this tribulational period, but they will be protected from the outpourings of God's wrath. So they're going to be a witness. They're going to be ones who will testify to the grace and the goodness of the Lord Jesus Christ. They are a beautiful picture of God's provision and protection and His affection. In addition to the witness of the church, we've seen already in our study that the angels and creatures of heaven also declare and call people to repentance, warning of God's judgment. So God is never without His witnesses. This is both a grace as an offering of warning as well as a judicial decree decree informing, informing people of the legal action that's about to come. And this is continuing now as we move from chapter 10 into chapter 11. And so look with me there in Revelation 11. Let's begin reading in verse 1. John says this, Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise, and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, Fire pours forth from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They are to have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying, and they have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And When they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit 
will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom in Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some people from some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. Those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets have been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on, all, on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The scene of the mighty angel and the little scroll that we have seen in chapter 10 assures the church of God's provision through suffering and persecution. And it also calls non-believers to faith and repentance. And, and so we're continuing to see this theme. And this warning, this appeal is also obviously seen here as we just read in these two witnesses of chapter 11. So let's walk through the text here and, and see what John is describing for us. Before the two witnesses are introduced, we learn something uh, about what's happening here. We, we see that John is again a participant. He's a participant in this vision. It happened in chapter 10. Now it's happening again in chapter 11. He's given a measuring rod, and he's told to measure the temple of God, to measure the, tent, the altar, and to measure those who are worshiping there in verse 1. Now, Ladd points out that the metaphor of measuring the temple, it has nothing to do with, with measuring the dimensions. It has nothing to do with knowing how big the temple is. It's more in the line of the idea of preservation and protection. God is the sovereign owner. God is the sovereign ruler. And so he's going to preserve his people in the midst of this great tribulation that is beginning. And it's going to continue to intensify. So the temple, the altar, and the worshipers picture then a heavenly temple. Oftentimes when we read and see this, this term in the New Testament, it speaks of and is referring to the church. So Grant Osborne points out that the measuring of the worshipers identifies them as belonging to God and under His protection. His protection, as we know, because we've already seen this, is from a spiritual harm. It's not speaking of a protection of physical harm. Physical harm is, is going to continue to come against the church. It's going to be unleashed against them by the beast and his followers. We've already seen this in Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, where it says that many Christ followers will be martyred. In fact, in chapter 13, verse 7, God will grant power to the beast to make war and to conquer the saints. The suffering of the church is symbolized here in verse 2 with the court outside the temple and the holy city being trampled by the nations. Church will be handed over to the Gentiles, handed over to the nations for a time. And Paul tells, or John, I should say, excuse me, tells us that it is 42 months or three and a half years. During this time, God again shows his sovereign control over 
every event. I love the fact that God never never leaves it up for debate whether he's in control. Always we see the sovereign hand of God leading, guiding, protecting, providing, orchestrating the events of the eschaton. And so in verse 3, John says, I will grant authority to my two witnesses. They are his witnesses. Their authority and power to, to do great wonders, they come from the hand of God. They, these witnesses come in the spirit of Christ. They are faithful witnesses. And so these two witnesses uh, are two because of the Deuteronomic demand, telling us that if you're going to bring a charge against someone or against a people, there has to be at least two witnesses. And so two witnesses come to bring a, a, a decree and an allegation of guilty before God against the people. These two witnesses will prophesy for 1,260 days or three and a half years. They're going to wear sackcloth as a sign of repentance and a call to faith. These witnesses, I believe, will be historical figures. I believe they will be real people, real people preaching and performing miracles. I also believe at the same time, they symbolize the church, the witnessing church in its suffering and in its triumph. The details of their ministry show that they will come in the spirit and the power of Elijah and Moses through their miracles. Their message will be one of judgment as well as one of of redemption. It's going to be rejected. It's going to be hated by the world. And the reason the ones who reject and seek to harm them is because They hate the message. But look what happens to those who seek to harm them. In verse 5, it tells us that fire is going to come out of their mouth. It's going to consume them. They're going to be able to call on droughts to cover the land. They're going to be able to turn water into blood. In fact, they're going to be able to recreate all of the Egyptian plagues there in Exodus whenever they desire, according to verse 6. Nothing and no one will be able to harm them until their time is complete until their duty, their task is finished as the witnesses, and then the beast will rise up, make war against them, and kill them, according to verse 8. John says that their bodies are going to lie in the street of the great city for three and a half days. The city, I believe, speaks of Jerusalem. It also could speak of Rome, some sort of combination of the both. Uh, but Jesus uh, we know was crucified there. We know Rome was, a, was an apostate people. We know that they oppressed the people of God. And so this city, this great city as it's d- described, is personified by its Sodom-like depravity and rebellion against God and its Egyptian-like oppression of God's people. And so the people of this city, perhaps even the people of the entire world, will gaze upon the dead bodies of these two witnesses lying in the street for three and a half days. They will celebrate their deaths. They will throw parties because of their deaths. They will exchange gifts with one another because these tormentors are dead. Celebration ought to remind us why and how far people will go in their rejection of God. See, the gospel exposes darkness to the light. This gospel exposes uh, the, the, the sin there, and this exposure is painful. It's uncomfortable. It is regarded as binding. People regard the, the idea that that person would give up their sin and come to Jesus. They regard that as a binding, but actually it's a freeing thing. So sinners rage against the gospel. 
They seek to hurt and even kill the messengers of the gospel in an attempt to get out from under the message. For three and a half days, the two witnesses will be resurrected. God is still in control. God will breathe life back into their lifeless bodies. And the world that's watching, the world that's celebrating, the world that's throwing parties will see their resurrection. And the joy and celebration that they have been joined, enjoying, will quickly turn into what John describes as Phobos Megas, great fear. See, abject terror at the power of God will overwhelm them. Their fear is compounded as God calls his witnesses into heaven. They will watch these men resurrected. They will watch them be caught up in a cloud and go into heaven, carried away in the glory of God. All that will be followed by a great earthquake that shakes the city, and a tenth of the city is killed. 7,000 people, John says, will lose their lives. They will die in their rebellion against God. This judgment, like all the other judgments that we've seen so far, is a partial judgment. Again, the grace of God. One-fourth were killed in the seals. One-third were killed in the trumpets. In all of those judgments, a call for repentance accompanied the wrath of God. The same takes place in this judgment. Only a fraction of the population will be killed. And so, as as W.J. Harrington says, both the visible triumph of the two witnesses and this mitigated punishment were meant to bring people to their senses. It seems that most, if not the rest of those in the city, will turn in true repentance and true faith to the God of heaven. These witnesses testified to both the judgment and the grace of God. Through suffering, they both experienced victory and brought it to those who needed it. There are three certainties then that I want to share with you this morning, three things that I believe we need to understand for this, apply to our own lives in light of all that John is sharing with us here in this passage. Here's the first thing that I want you to see this morning. One, God's protection of believers promises security through suffering, through death, rather than from it. Let me say that again. God's protection of believers promises security through suffering and death rather than from it. See, John's measuring of the temple there in the first two verses symbolized, as I said, God's preservation and God's protection of the church as it experienced suffering. It was not a symbol of removal out from the suffering or away from the suffering. This is something that we don't fully understand. This is something that's hard for us to grasp where we are today. This concept of suffering, it really is, I believe, completely foreign to the vast majority of American Christians. We have never had to experience suffering. So we don't know what to make of this. Experientially, we don't know how to understand suffering. I mean, we're healthy, we're wealthy uh, by the world standard. I, I know that could be debated between us, but from the world standard, as Americans, as Christians in America, we are healthy, we are wealthy. We enjoy incredible freedoms and rights protected under the Constitution. And as a result, it is hard for us to comprehend the Bible's teaching on suffering. I believe most Christians, and I'm just speculating here, but I see it in my own life, that when we read those passages of Scripture that really deal with the church suffering and going through difficult times, we may just gloss over them because we don't fully understand how to grasp what that means in our own lives. And so we... Tend to just dismiss it. 
We can't fathom what it looks like. We don't know what it feels like to suffer. For, for example, the past eight weeks, I mean, the, the, the past eight weeks that we've been in have been hellish for most of us during this shutdown. We thought, we, we're thinking the world is coming to an end, and perhaps it is. Therefore, what happens is we tend to interpret God's promise of protection and suffering as His promise of protection from suffering. We neither want to suffer, nor do we think that we should suffer. Now, one of the reasons, and I've told you throughout this, that I am my position on end times things is a position called historic premillennialism. It's a position where, and if you're paying attention, you you're catching this. I believe the church goes through the tribulation. I believe we go through the great tribulation. And so there's a lot of reasons for that. I've been trying to lay some of that out. But one of the reasons I've always had the had an issue with the pre-tribulation position, the pre-tribulation rapture position, more specifically, is the emphasis that seems to be placed on escaping the great tribulation. I mean, why do we think that the church that's going to be present during the eschaton, the church present during those last days, what we're reading about here in Revelation, why do we think that that church would escape tribulation, escape suffering, escape the danger and the martyrdom in many ways when the rest of the church throughout history has not been able to do that? And yet that's a position that many people take when it comes to this understanding of the rapture. The reality is that we should never expect to be spared because throughout history, throughout church history, the church has suffered. The church has experienced pain because of their position. Now, historic premillennialism, as I said, the position I, uh, I lean toward, I hold when it comes to trying to understand what's going on here in God's Word as it pertains to the end times, this position is post-tribulational. It, it, it really offers no escape from hardship. It paints a very realistic picture of the demands and the costs and the pains of the Christian life while demanding, or I should say, while reminding believers of the resources of power upon which they can draw living in the midst of hardship. God gives us the resources we need to continue to be faithful, to continue to be steadfast in our commitment to Christ and to His gospel. And so it seems to have greater symmetry with the experience of the New Testament church than perhaps those of the pre-tribulational rapture. What we see here in this passage is that God has promised His church suffering, or He's promised the church security through suffering, not security from suffering. Here's the second certainty that I want you to see. The sweetness of victory can only be known through the pain of suffering. The sweetness of victory can only be known through the pain of suffering. The death and the resurrection of these two witnesses that we've been reading about parallels the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, as well as it symbolizes the call to every believer that victory, think about this, victory is only found in suffering. Our victory in Christ is, is available because Jesus suffered on our behalf. So according to Jesus, the disciple is to take up his cross and follow in his footsteps. We're to take up our cross and follow the Lord Jesus. Paul talked about the disciple in Philippians 3 verse 10, sharing in the sufferings of Christ, even becoming like him in his 
death. Now, Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 13, related the sharing in Christ's sufferings as the path to glory. So we see over and over again in God's Word, in the New Testament, this concept, this idea of if Jesus suffered, then I should expect to suffer. And I should glory in that suffering. Because when I suffer in Christ, there's something about that that draws me closer to Him, that gives me another aspect, another level of understanding of His faithfulness, His goodness, and His grace. So like the two witnesses, believers should look on suffering as a privilege, as the deepest possible fellowship with Him. Again, as I said just a moment ago, suffering is a very foreign concept to us in our American Christianity. It makes no sense to us that a loving God would allow His children to suffer, to endure pain and death. Many times when believers are thrust into such a fiery ordeal, they become disillusioned in their faith. They walk away from their faith. They don't know what to do with their faith. See, they didn't sign up for suffering. They thought they were signing up for a pain-free experience with God. They thought that when they came to Jesus, everything would be wonderful. Everything would be great. There would be no, no valleys in life. You would just constantly live on the mountaintop. But that's not, that's not life lived in this world. A few days ago, my family and I watched a movie that just came out this spring. The movie's called I Still Believe. It's a movie that tells the real-life story of, of the Christian artist Jeremy Camp. Jeremy's wife, his young wife, I mean, they'd only been married a short time, but his young wife, Melissa, had a reoccurrence of ovarian cancer. It came back in a fury. When they discovered it the second time, it had spread throughout their body. There was nothing they could do. There was no medical option to save her life. She was given only weeks to live. Melissa was going to die. As you can imagine, this was extremely painful for Jeremy, extremely painful for Melissa. But after her death, Jeremy really struggled. He wrestled with understanding why the Lord would allow such a godly and such a faithful woman, uh, his, the love of his life, to die at the age of 21. In a fit of rage, he broke his guitar and, in God's grace, found a note written to him by his wife before she died. In the note, she assured Jeremy that she was good. She assured Jeremy that he could and that he should move on with his life, to move on with his music, and that she had come to understand more fully what suffering does to the believer. Hear this. I want you to hear this statement. This statement, I believe, was the, one of the most profound things that I saw and learned and took from this great movie. She said this, Suffering doesn't destroy faith. It refines it. Suffering doesn't destroy faith, it refines it. It gives us another way, a deeper way, a more full way of understanding the faithfulness and the goodness of Almighty God. See, it draws the believer into a deeper and more full, more full understanding of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Elizabeth Elliot, who had her own share of pain and suffering in her life, she said this, if God is in charge and loves us, then whatever is given is subject to His control and is meant ultimately for our joy. Think about that. If God loves us, if God is for us, then whatever He allows to bring into our life, it's meant for our goodness, it's meant for our joy, it's meant for our growth. 
Frederick Faber said something very similar. He said, blessed is any way, however overwhelming, which God has been so good as to fasten with, it, with his own hands upon our shoulders. See, there are certain depths in our walk with God that we can reach only through the pain, only through the experience of suffering. It's as Henry Ward Beecher said, God washes the eyes by tears until they can behold the invisible land where their tears shall come no more. I love that statement. Let me see. Let me read it again for you. God washes the eyes by tears until they can behold the invisible land where tears shall come no more. We're able to better see heaven as God takes us through seasons of our life of pain and suffering. Does it make sense from a human standpoint? But it makes perfect sense from a heaven standpoint. The sweetness of victory is known best through the pain of suffering. Here's a third certainty that I want you to see this morning. Faithfulness in the tribulation today will lead to conversion in others tomorrow. These two witnesses here persevered through everything hell had to bring against them. They were brutally assassinated in the view of the entire world. Their bodies were left there in the street. I mean, that was a, a very indignant type of thing to do in that day and age or in that culture that John is writing. Those who gloated of their death dismissed their preaching and their subsequent deaths as a waste of time and energy because, after all, they had been conquered. They're dead. They're gloating. They're celebrating. But the Bible tells us something very, just very incredible, very wonderful. But Three days later, sounds a whole lot like the Lord Jesus Christ. People are celebrating. He's dead. He's crucified. And then he rose. Those two men, those two witnesses got up. They ascended into heaven. And then an earthquake devastates the city. It kills 7,000 people who were enjoying their party. These events shake and bring all of them to their knees. They remember and they recall the preaching of those witnesses and they begin to call upon Jesus for help. See, in the midst of the tribulation, we often ask why. We often ask, God, why are you allowing this? God, why are you causing this? God, why am I enduring this? Why am I going through this mess? I don't want to do this. I hate where I'm at today. I hate what I'm experiencing today. We ask why. Try to understand God's purpose for our suffering. And often it does not and will not make sense. Many times the purpose involves our own sanctification. It's something God's using in us to grow us and to conform us more and more into His image. It is a grace of God given to us. But many times it also means the salvation of those who are watching, watching us faithfully endure, watching us faithfully persevere, watching us faithfully struggle through this fiery ordeal. Again, Melissa Camp's story had that kind of ending. She had accepted her faith, fate. She had accepted and, and began to believe that her story, if, if it helped one person, was worth it all. If it changed one person's life, it was worth going through all of this. So after her death, Jeremy began to tell her story of faithfulness. And it led one particular day to a young lady who were struggling with her own disillusionment. She had been through her own painful experience, but she heard Melissa's story, her story of faithfulness. And in God's providence and in God's grace, she became that one, that one person who was turned, that one person who was strengthened, that one person who was encouraged, that one person who began to come back to the Lord. And in God's grace and in God's providence, this one, this young lady, 
would later become Jeremy's wife and be a sweet healing gift to Jeremy's broken heart. Isn't God good? God is good. See, the people around you and I, they're watching our lives. They're watching what we do. They want to know if Jesus, the, the Jesus that we follow is worth the trouble. They want to know what it's like to continue to persevere. See, if you give up when life gets hard, then they know that this Jesus thing is a sham. They know that Jesus has no power, no ability to help us. They know he's not worth following. But when you hold on to him in faith, when the world around you is burning down, they know something is different. And so they listen and they pay attention and they want to know more about Jesus. They see you sell out to Jesus and they long to know more. I'm reminded there in Matthew chapter 13 of couple different parables talking about when that great church, that great treasure is uncovered and the person goes and sells all that he has to purchase that field or to buy that pearl. It's all about understanding the treasure that we find in Christ and understanding that it's worth more than anything this life has to offer. So we sell out to the Lord Jesus regardless of circumstances in our lives. Tribulation today, suffering that you're enduring, the pain that you're enduring, God is using to refine you in your walk with Jesus, but also to help others who are watching come to Jesus as Lord and Savior tomorrow. It's going to lead others to Christ. See, God always has his witnesses. Christian, what kind of witness are you? What is your life saying to the people who are watching? What is your life saying to those who are around you? Are you like that firm tree planted by streams of water? You're producing fruit. Others are being nourished by your life. Your roots of faith are deep and they're strong, and you're a great example for others to follow. Or do you waver in your faith? Do you waver in your faithfulness? Let's remember that suffering is part of the Christian experience. It's part of what it means to be a follower of the Lord Jesus. And God uses your pain. He uses the seasons of suffering for his glory and for the good of you as well as others. There's also a good chance that some of you listening this morning, some of you that will listen in days ahead on the podcast or on the on our website, you'll stream this. Today, you're best described as a spectator. You're not a participant in this life of faith. You're a spectator. You're not a follower of Jesus, but you might be interested this morning. There's a message for you. You can be like those in verse 13 who put their faith in Christ. All it means is that you need to understand that you're sinful. You need to understand that you need to call out to God and and ask Him to forgive you of your sin and trust Him as Lord and Savior. See, the Bible has a message for you. We talk about it this way every Sunday. We got some bad news, we got some good news, and we have some best news. Good news is, is God loves you. God created you for himself. God has a plan for your life, a purpose for your life, a design for your life. The bad news is that you're a sinner and that sin has broken you. It separated you from God. You're completely broken. There's no hope for you other than Christ. That's the best news. The best news is that God has done everything necessary to pay your sin debt, to cover your sin, to forgive your sin. If you will come to him, believe in what he's done for you, call upon him for salvation, he will forgive and heal and redeem your life. That's the best news. Many of you have done that. Many of you may need to do that even today.
There's going to be a slide on the screen in just a moment, and, and I want you to, to respond. I believe when the Word of God's taught, when the Word of God is preached, when the Word of God is read, we need to respond and, and respond to what God is teaching, what God is revealing to us. And for you, you're a Christian perhaps, and God is encouraging you and, and strengthening you, but you need someone, you want somebody to pray with you. I want to encourage you, if God is leading you to make a decision today, tell someone about it. So I want to encourage you to go to our, our, our webpage there, go to our contact page, and, and you can just simply send us a message and say, would you pray with me? Would you, would you uh, just encourage me in this? This is what I believe God is leading me to do. We'll respond. You can email us. Perhaps you need to give your life to Jesus. Do the same thing. You can email us. You can send us a direct message. You can go to our contact us page on our, web, on our website. We want to hear from you today. We want to hear what God is doing in your life and how he's leading you to respond in faith and repentance. Isn't God good? He always has a witness. Even today, whatever's going on in your life, whatever you're struggling with, whatever you're dealing with, even if you think your life is just great today, God always has a witness to speak in, to draw you closer to yourself, to himself, and to encourage you in your walk with him. God is gracious, and God is good. We're going to close in just a moment with a word of prayer. And as I do so, I'm going to pray for our offering. God has blessed us as a church. Man, again, God is good. I was uh, looking at just some numbers this past week, just looking at where we're at financially. You know, in the midst of this shutdown, there is a lot of churches across our country, a lot of churches in our convention that are struggling, finan struggling financially. But God is blessing us. As a church, you continue to be so faithful in the area of giving to the tithe and the offering. And, and so we are, in many ways, right in step with where we have been last year and in some ways even ahead of we, where we were last year at this time, even in the midst of a shutdown, even in the midst of not gathering together uh, on campus and only doing these virtual types of services. So thank you for being faithful in your giving, and let's continue to do so as we serve the Lord, serve our community, and try to make much of the Lord Jesus Christ. But thank you for being with us this morning. I'm going to pray, and if you need to respond to Christ, respond to the word that's been preached this morning, please do so. But let's pray. Let's thank God for what he's doing in, in us, and let's ask God's blessings upon the offering that we're going to receive this week for his glory and for the good of others. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this time that we've had to share together. We thank you for this word that we've given us. Thank you for your witness and your testimony. We thank you for the gospel that is the power of God unto salvation. And Lord, we thank you that even in the midst of judgment, you're calling us to follow you. And so, Lord, I pray for those that have been listening this morning, those who will listen in the days to come, who need a relationship with Jesus. Lord, help them to respond in faith. Help them to respond in repentance and find life in Jesus. I pray for Christians to be strengthened in their walk with Jesus. Lord, many of them might be struggling, struggling with their health, struggling with financially, struggling because of family situations. And, Lord, they're wondering, why is this happening? I don't know the full answer for that, but we do know that we serve a good God, and he's used, you're using anything and everything in our life to bring us closer to you and to be a witness and a testimony to those who are watching. So may God, we be encouraged and strengthened to continue to be faithful. Lord, help us to do that. We pray for the offering that we're going to receive this week. God, would you bless it, use it for your glory. And Lord, I pray that you'd help us to continue to be a church that is so faithful in our giving, so joyful in our giving. And Lord, it is a great, great testimony to your faithfulness. And so we thank you for that. God, use us this week as we seek to make much of you in all that we do. We pray 
In the name of Jesus, amen. Well, again, thank you for being with us this morning. I pray blessings upon you. I hope you have a great week, and we'll see you again next Sunday right here on our live stream feed. God bless you.